Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. For this special bonus episode of Bioscience Talks, I was fortunate enough to be joined by three guests. They were Rob Peters, Senior Representative with the Southwest Regional Office of the Defenders of Wildlife, Rurik Liest, who's the Head of the Laboratory of Conservation Biology at the Universidad Autónoma Metropolitana, Lerma Campus, and Sergio Avila, who is a wildlife biologist and a program manager with the Sierra club. The subject of the day was a recent bioscience viewpoint about the ecological effects of the proposed border wall between the U.S. and Mexico. And I should probably mention that that viewpoint now has accrued over 2,800 scientist signatories from both sides of the border. Uh, but we also had a chance to talk about a variety of challenges of doing science in the borderlands, which is the kind of thing that those of us who live very far away don't necessarily think about as often as we should. But it was an extremely rich conversation, and I'd like to get straight to it. Rurik, Sergio, and Rob, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Muchas gracias. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, welcome. Uh, it's not usual that we have three people from three different sites on the podcast, but I think it's going to work just fine. First, to get us started, I was hoping uh, we could talk about the article that's the reason why we're chatting today, uh, which is a viewpoint that expresses concern over the potential ecological effects of the proposed border wall between the U.S. and Mexico. Rob, can you get us started with that one and tell us about you know the process of writing it and then also the large effort that went into gathering signatories for it? I'll be glad to. Um, so I guess the genesis of it was uh, the end of last year when um, Defenders of Wildlife published a report called In the Shadow of the Wall, and then subtitled Borderlands, Wildlife, Habitat, and Collaborative Conservation at Risk. And it was a massive report that I worked on myself for about eight months, and I interviewed many people, including Rurik and Sergio here with us today, and um, collected information from a wide variety of scientists to get a sense of what's really going on with the wall and what its impacts have been to date and what its likely impacts will be in the future. So we released that report and um, got very little press attention. And the same thing had happened to a report by another uh, great wildlife group uh, the Wildlands Network. So I was scratching my head trying to figure out why is this issue being overlooked by so much of the press? And we couldn't really tell if it was just fatigue with the issue or um, whether reporters weren't interested in wildlife. But um, the idea we came up to address this was to publish an article in Bioscience with highly esteemed co-authors uh, with major reputations, both U.S. and Mexican. And then we would open it to signatories because we thought in order to raise this to a high level of attention, what we need to do is have it be essentially stamped for approval by a large number of reputable scientists. So we were truly gratified that every single co-author that we approached, and we ended up, there were 18 of us co-authors, one being Rurik, and every single one said, yes, this issue is so important that we wanna lend our support to it. And then of course we, at the, as of the date of publication, we had 2,700 signatories and we're up close to 3,000 now. 
So we got what we were looking for was a, a vote of confidence and a stamp of approval. And the result was that there's been a huge amount of press around this report and around this issue. Okay, and now I'd like to open this up to the three of you and chat a little bit about the why. Uh, you know, it's sort of the ecological effects we might expect to see uh, when a hardened border is placed over a large distance, um, you know, like the U.S.-Mexico border, and the effects that that's going to have on wildlife, you know, who naturally would not respect lines on a map and who have been, you know, traversing that territory for quite some time. We know partially of the effects because only a small portion of the 3,000-kilometer border has been studied. Studies have been done in both sides of the border, in the uh, Gran Desierto de Altar and Pinacate area, in uh, Cuenca Los Ojos, in eastern uh, Sonora, Janos uh, grasslands in western uh, Chihuahua, in uh, uh, Maderas del Carmen, Big Bend, and uh, further uh, east, in uh, Tamaulipas. So it is based on these very few places that we have an idea about the potential impacts. In Janos, that is the place where I have been working for many years, it is uh, the bison that uh, first started the interest about the potential impact of the border, border wall because the bison move back and forth between Mexico and the U.S. And half of the valley that they used to move has been fenced with Normandy barriers. And this has limited the area the bison can, can move uh, between these two areas. And at the same time, the pronghorn and the bighorn sheep, all of which are endangered in Mexico. That's just an example of the impact of the wall completely stopping the movement of these species from one side to the other in these areas. Um, I would like to offer uh, a, little bit, a little bit more of uh, context too. Um, I think it's, uh, we need to change the perspective when we think that these animals don't respect borders. In fact, nature has no borders. There are no borders. These are artificial political straight lines that don't follow uh, the topography, don't follow the water, don't follow the vegetation. And so it is these type of barriers and these type of uh, ways of thinking that don't respect the natural world. So when we have uh, black bears trying to distribute from the Sky Islands in Arizona down into the Sky Islands in Sonora, they are following their own, their own corridors. They are following their own needs. And so it's very difficult to say what to expect as impacts one, because infrastructure has already been built in the border for over 15 years, for 20 years. If we start counting when infrastructure started being built in, in, in urban areas like Tijuana, San Diego, or like El Paso, Ciudad Juarez, uh, we have to look at what has been going on already for decades. Um, and when we talk about the environment, we cannot single out one impact or the most important impacts because all of the impacts are, are connected. James, this is Rob. Uh, I wanted to come back, if I can, uh, and add a little bit to your question about what are the effects. Um, I think one thing that Sergio just touched on, which is important to recognize, is, okay, when we're trying to figure out what 
are the worst effects going to be? Um, we can look at various types of effects, and we can also look at some of the places that have already been destroyed or heavily degraded by the border wall and border wall activities. Like we could look in California, uh, right there um, at the Tijuana Estuary, where Smuggler's Gulch was completely filled in by two million cubic yards of dirt. Um, and this was a gulch that was uh, very important from a biological diversity point of view. And the result of filling it in has been not only the loss of that gulch, but increased erosion, which now deposits silt, which damages the Tijuana Estuary, which is habitat for um, the endangered light-footed Ridgeways rail, which is a sort of marsh bird. So we can look at some of the damage that's already been done, but I think it's important to recognize that the worst effects haven't been seen yet because the wall is not complete. So for instance, in the Sky Islands area, uh, many of the listeners might know that jaguars, male jaguars have been popping up the last couple of decades, three of them in the last couple of years, in the Sky Island Mountains of Mexico and Arizona, and they're coming up from Mexico. So even though there's a lot of border wall in Arizona, they're finding their way through gaps. But So we're not seeing the worst effects for a species like that yet, but once it's completely walled off, yes, we will. Um, we can expect the end of jaguars in the US if the wall is completed. And I'll just mention one other thing. This is zooming up to a really high level and saying one of the things that we did in our paper was to look at, um, did some geographic sort of mapping work and looked at the ranges of terrestrial and freshwater species. And we uh, concluded that if the border wall was, were to be completed, 17% of the species that we looked at, and the jaguar is one of them, would have remaining populations in the U.S., residual populations, unconnected with their populations in Mexico, because they'd be walled off, that would have uh, a total area for one of these species of 20,000 square kilometers or less. And that, according to the criteria used by um, IUCN, puts it at a high risk of extinction in the wild. So we're looking at 17% of the species that we looked at, which would be at increased risk of extinction in the U.S. because of the wall if it were to be completed. So rather than simply having, you know, remnant populations on both sides of the border, you would end up potentially or even likely losing some of those populations on the U.S. side. Uh, ab absolutely, and you can point to something like the Keno checkered spot butterfly in California, where at least the populations, the southern U.S. populations near the wall, according to Fish and Wildlife Service Recovery Plan, probably depend on um, being sustained by the population across the border in Mexico. So you could look at a species like that, but probably the clearest case, the flagship, is definitely the jaguar, because if you... If you build that wall, there will be no more jaguars in the U.S. unless we airlift them. Right, which uh, probably not going to happen given scientific funding in this country. 
Probably not. <laughs> One thing I was I was hoping to ask about as well, because I think that you know many of us who don't live near the border um, don't have a lot of insight into uh, what it's like to live near the border, what it's like to particularly work near the border, and to conduct science near the border. Um, so I was just hoping you could tell us a little bit about you know what that process is like now. And what it's been like since, you know, the passage of the Real ID Act and, you know, how it's changed recently and over the years before, you know, uh, what's it like to be a scientist at the border? I think I think our listeners probably don't have much of an idea. And I know that I don't. Yeah, if I could just say one thing and then I'll let my two colleagues go at it because they're the ones that really have been doing the research, which I have not. But I talked to a lot of scientists doing research on the border uh, for the report that the bioscience article is based on. And I heard over and over again about the chilling effect, the severe chilling effect that the border wall itself and enhanced border security is having on the ability of scientists to collaborate with each other and to, you know, use the value of those protected lands that are on each side of the border for research and research that can help protect those lands and endangered species. And I'll just throw out one example because it sounds really trivial, which is makes it almost humorous, but it's not trivial. And that is there's a, um, a scientist working at uh, in the Tijuana estuary area, and part of his job is to deal with this issue I was talking about before of the excess erosion coming from the Mexican side into the estuary and damaging it. And one of the things he has to do as part of his job is set up meetings with his Mexican counterparts. And the thing is, it's extremely difficult to make that happen now because it just takes so long to get across the darn border, as I experienced when I came back from Mexico a month ago. Um, it's just, you know, to, to cross the border, stand in line for five hours for, you know, a two-hour meeting is extremely challenging. So this could be a situation where you're, you're working with someone who lives – 15 or 20 minutes away from where you work, but you're waiting hours and hours and hours to get across. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Rourke and Sergio can talk about their personal experiences and, and you know, harassment. I can say that uh, I have been living in Arizona for 15 years. I came hired by the University of Arizona to do specific field research on pygmy owls on both sides of the border. And I think the effects of uh, the policies is beyond the time that you spend at the border. When you are a person of color, you have to answer way more questions. You have to prove your education. You have to prove the research that you're doing. You have to prove, um, even when you're talking to agents who don't know what a pygmy owl or a jaguar or a bison are, um, you have to convince them that you know what they are. And it, it, regardless if you're coming through land and you're going across through a port of entry or you're landing in an airport, um, time is only one of the resources that is wasted here. The other thing is trust. I think the most important part in terms of the binational relations for conservation is trust. I think that trust has been lost on both sides of the border and I will be very clear to say that more on the Mexican side where we have been offended by the current president and as a candidate and where the government of Mexico or some, at least some of the decision makers at certain level might not want to go allow government personnel to come to a country where they are offended, where they are attacked because of their nationality. So it's more than the time that we spend at the border. It is 
it is the moral cost of this kind of of this kind of policies. And I also wanted to say that um, there are a lot of examples of the impacts uh, of of barriers along the border. Uh, but again, we have to understand that the border is not a wasteland. The desert is not a wasteland and just sand dunes as people see it in the movies. Um, this, this border is a very, very diverse and rich border of natural places from uh, Big Bend National Park in Texas to, to El Pinacate Biosphere Reserve in Sonora to Organ Pipe National Monument in Arizona to so many other places, Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge in Texas. I mean, there are so many places that are valuable. It's impossible to say the damage is such. And I wanted to address the idea that uh, a barrier could be the end for jaguars. The, uh, the barrier is, uh, beyond that, is the end for ecological processes to continue because even if the barrier doesn't block jaguars, even if there are jaguars in the United States, we have evidence of the barrier blocking uh, its food, blocking herds of deer and blocking herds of javelina and blocking water. So it doesn't matter if jaguars are stuck north or south of the border, they are stuck. And one important perspective I really want to bring here because I hear it in the media lacking all the time is like the interest of the environment ends at the border. We also have national parks in Mexico. We also have an agency managing land for protect for conservation, we also have management plans, and we also have individual landowners voluntarily putting their land for conservation along the borderlands. In fact, in the 15 years that I have been in Arizona, I have seen more land protected on the Mexico side than on the U.S. side. And what's astounding is that the government, the the U.S. federal government, is giving itself permission to waive laws that are historic laws, wilderness. Uh, Wilderness Act, Endangered Species Act, National Environmental Policy Act, and many other laws that are so important for the rest of the world and create a standard of conservation. And now the, U the United States is turning its own back to, to its people from 40 or 50 years ago who passed that law, Republican government who passed that laws. And um, now they're just invading, uh, ignoring them. And there is no common sense along what's going on on the border. And Rurik, what's your experience been like working along the border? And how has that changed over the years? So to answer your question about how is the for scientists working at the border, I would like to go back some years back in time. In uh, 1993, when I arrived working at the border, you couldn't see it unless you were standing on it because it was only... Uh, barbed wire uh, fence that if you are a few hundred meters away, you cannot see the thin wire. So you could walk all the way to the border uh, and see a continu continuity of the landscape, either be uh, grasslands, oak forest, uh, uh, shrublands, whatever. So it was very easy to, uh, to work in the region because it made sense. We, if we study the biology of an animal at the border, we would see that it moved back and forth uh, the barbed wire fence. It was not the end of the world. But now it has become like the end of the world in some places. You can see the border from uh, kilometers away 
and you reach the border, and depending on when you are standing, you can see uh, four and a half uh, solid metal wall that uh, doesn't allow you to see what's in the other side, nor allows the animals or plants to move back and forth. And this is relevant because the ecosystems of all the border region are the result of uh, over 10,000 years of uh, ecological processes since the end of the last glaciation. They started, the, uh, some trees started to go uh, back north, some other plants and animals uh, started to uh, come further south, south etc. So back in uh, the early uh, 1990s where uh, we started working in the region, there was a lot of collaboration with the uh, colleagues working in uh, properties in the north uh, side of the border. So we would move back and forth, we would visit their sites, they could, we would come to uh, our places, we exchange information. We publish a lot of uh, research on prey dogs, uh, bighorn sheep, beaver, uh, neotropical cats, coyotes, uh, bison, etc. And it's precisely this research result of the binational collaboration of uh, researchers, researchers from both countries that has given part of the information about why this uh, barrier is so uh, dangerous. You know, that gets to something that I was actually hoping to talk about, which is um, the articles call on the Department of Homeland Security to reinstate environmental impact assessments. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about, you know, why those might have been suspended in the first place. Is that, you know, purely for the sake of expediency? Yes. Uh, kind of what's going on there? Yes. That language is in the Real ID Act, Section 102 to expedite construction of border infrastructure along the U.S.-Mexico border. There is no other reason, but, but this is not separate uh, from Republicans in the House and in the Senate who are attacking the Endangered Species Act. This is not separate from Republicans' uh, representatives who are trying to weaken all these environmental laws across the country. Um, so what they were trying to do is... Um, take out the process that exists to involve the public to request the research and to gather the information that will give us um, a much better mitigation plan and implementation and also monitoring. They skipped all of that in order to start building right away. And um, they, the Department of Homeland Security and the Bush administration. And so the reason is just to do it as fast as possible without having to have the process and the involvement that the American public has had for 50 years with these groundbreaking laws like the Endangered Species Act and the Wilderness Act. So that obviously creates a very challenging situation, which, you know, these groundbreaking laws, as you say, are not being heeded. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what happens if the wall goes forward. And looking at it more broadly in terms of ecosystems and ecosystem function, you know, I think we've talked a lot about, you know, the individual species and, you know, sort of the uh, local extirpations that we'd expect to see. But, you know, what about on the broader scale? What can we expect to see from ecosystems and how will they be affected uh, should this border be put in place? And I recognize, of course, that that may not be knowable uh, because we're not getting the research right now. No, but we know that uh, the climate is changing yep. and basically is warming up. That's it. And there, there's a, uh, a study specifically for the Chihuahuan Desert that showed that the region that 
uh, this study was in a broader region, but it showed that the Chihuahuan region is the one that is going to have more exchange of the species. More animals are going to disappear and be replaced by others because of climate change. And the animals will need to move high above and further north to escape the heat that goes beyond the physiological tolerance or the number of days uh, that they can stand with enough water, etc. A wall in an environment, in a world that needs movement south to north, basically uh, will result in dramatic effects for uh, the plants and us to reaccommodate in this uh, changing climate. And this will result in the extinction of uh, populations, but it also may result in a longer term in uh, species not being able to colonize places where they could establish because they will be cooler than the ones they are escaping. So we have no idea about the extent of uh, effects that this uh, world will have in the context of uh, climate change. So there's a whole litany of possible effects, um, partly that we know from looking at other places, um, like, for example, uh, the mere act of building the wall and the many, many roads that uh, proliferate in the area of the wall um, will, when vehicles go along roads, they bring in um, noxious introduced weed species. So that's something we can expect as an invasion of weed species in the area. Um, flooding is a huge issue uh, along the road. And um, it's probably worth talking a little bit about coming back to what's going on right now in the lower Rio Grande Valley, because that's the area at greatest risk right now. Um, but maybe I'll come back to that in a minute um, or we can collectively. Um, so there's an issue of something like stopping seed distribution, like mesquite seeds typically get distributed. They're eaten by coyotes and javelinas and other animals, and um, they poop them out and new mesquite trees grow. Well, you can stop that seed distribution. Um, we know from looking at the Great Wall of China, um, which that over a lengthy period of time, the plants on either side of the wall are genetically different because the wall has stopped plant populations on either side from exchanging seeds. So we can expect that. We can expect some bird species even, um, like the ferruginous pygmy owl, which doesn't fly more than four or five feet above the ground, um, that the wall may stop them from crossing the road. And some butterfly species, like the Kino checker spot, um, again, would not, in most cases, get over the wall. So we're, for the first time ever, we are walling off an entire continent um, and, and for many, many species, completely stopping the exchange of genes. Um, what exactly the long-term effects will, of that will be is impossible to determine, but we certainly know they'll be profound. Right. And, you know, recognizing that this is a dynamic situation and a very challenging one, are th is there any low-hanging fruit that should be picked by governments, you know, regardless of scale or private individuals, stakeholders, decision makers, that could help mitigate some of these effects, kind of regardless of whether or not a wall was built? 
Well, I would say that that's the importance of these laws that we have because they involve public comment, they involve planning, they involve mitigation plans. And so had the Department of Homeland Security followed the laws that it waived, they would have a much better plan of the places where they wanted to build. They would have some feedback from the public. They would have some feedback from science. They would be able to uh, plan much better what infrastructure fits there. They would be able to analyze much better what species um, and what ecosystems might be at risk. Um, and, you know, there's, there's uh, very typical things like uh, Rurik was talking about the money that is used and in Arizona, for the infrastructure that we have here, the average cost is about seven or $800,000 a mile uh, of the infrastructure, which, you know, if that infrastructure falls or is destroyed or anything, that's another $800,000. This, this uh, price tag doesn't include uh, maintenance. In California, for example, one mile of the border is over $20 million. At least that's what it was 10 years ago. That kind of money would help address the root causes. That kind of money would help address some of the reasons why people lost their jobs or lost their sources, their financial sources. That kind of money would help build schools and school and hospitals in other places where, where people don't have to cross many borders to come and get it. So I think that had the existing laws been applied and the rule of law followed, um, Money would be better invested, plans would be better done, and scientific information and public involvement would have actually improved this kind of project. Uh, At the moment, probably the most important uh, thing that we can do is to educate the public in both Mexico and the U.S., mainly in the U.S., but also in Mexico. People need to know what stake, including the decision makers of our country. But in the U.S., I don't think the U.S. or the world can stand another uh, administration so uh, aggressive and uh, disrespectful of the environment. I want to throw in one statistic uh, about the proliferation of roads that blew my mind when I first came across it. Um, So we have a couple of types of roads, right? We have ones that are the access roads that run right along the border wall, but then there's this proliferation of other roads, um, many of them undesignated, where Border Patrol just cuts across country um, chasing people or to get some place more quickly. So in 2014, the National Park Service did a study um, looking at the Border Patrol's AHO-1 project, which was 10 observation towers um, on or near Cabeza Prieta National Wildlife Refuge and Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument. And they mapped 9,327 miles of undesignated vehicle routes in the area of that AHA-1 project. Uh, really an un- unbelievable amount of degradation. So if you imagine those vehicles crushing vegetation, crushing animal burrows, um, and then carrying weed seeds, it's not a good thing. 
Okay, and as you know, as we draw near a close, um, I wanted to make sure that we didn't give short shrift to uh, those who are on the Mexican side of the border. And I was wondering if you had any insights or thoughts on, you know, how the border wall is being perceived there. Uh, is the perspective the same as we have in the U.S. or, you know, are researchers and others looking at this differently? There is one very basic thing um, in terms of the land management in the United States and in Mexico that creates a difference in the involvement of the public. In the United States, we have, especially in Western United States, we have huge swaths of land, which is public land. And that's why we talk about the taxes. We talk about, as, as the American public, we talk about the laws that should protect those places, the access and the rights that we have to protect those places and insert uh, ourselves in public process because these are public lands managed by public agencies with public money. On the south side of the border, there are no such thing as public lands. They are private lands. And so the engagement and the involvement of people as a whole is a little bit less. Not to, not to say that they're not worried about it, not to say that they don't care. It's just that land is managed in a different way. And so the the people's response to it is also a bit different. But I also agree with Rurik that officially from governments, from the federal government to the state governments, stronger statements should be made, not only, and, and not about who's gonna pay for the wall, that's a silly argument, it's just a distraction, but it's about the damage that it creates on the ground for people, for plants and for animals that have lived uh, in places like this uh, for many, many years. And I want to highlight the Toono Oram Nation, which is one of the largest indigenous nations in the United States or in the territory of the United States that happens to be bisected by the international border. Their territory is bisected by this border. And so they are mostly in the United States in a small piece in the, in the south side of the border. For them, moving across this border and with these policies is very difficult. And we also need to keep in mind that they have ho they hold um, traditional ecological knowledge. They might have the answers on how to adapt to climate change or how to fight some of these problems. <clears throat> Excuse me. And if we destroy their land and if we destroy the right that they have to access their land, then we are losing much more knowledge than just the scientific knowledge that, that we don't have at this point. And that would be a terrible thing to lose. I'd like to thank you all very much for joining me today uh, and going through all the challenges of getting us all in the same virtual space at the same time. Thank you for the opportunity and for uh, presenting these facts to the American public. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, share our work. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.